This is a download from Ormskirk Christadelphians of one of our Sunday afternoon talks. A video of the talk is also available along with more downloads at our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk or join us in person at our meeting room on Moorgate in Ormskirk every Sunday at 1.45pm. We hope you enjoy the talk. But today we're going to be looking at the subject of water. And after the summer that we had, I thought that was appropriate. I've divided the talk this afternoon into two strands. We're going to look at the importance and the use of wells uh, for drawing water in the Middle East, and a lot of this is from Genesis. And then I'm going to be looking at the subject of the incident by Jacob's well, recorded in John chapter 4 that we've just read together. What do we think of when we read the word well in scripture in the sense of a thing that supplies water? Do we perhaps see a little brick cylinder uh, with a steeply pitched roof on top and between them a crank with some rope? Oh, I don't know if you feel this, but there's some good actions going on for anyone listening. Uh, a crank with some rope and a bucket at the end of it, the sort of thing that the superstitious might chuck a coin in and make a wish. Most of us have probably never drunk directly from a well, although many of us will have done indirectly. For what it's worth, I think that most of the water in the, the northwest of England is held in reservoirs. In many places in Britain, drinking water is provided from artesian wells. The distinction being that the water in an artesian well rises under its own pressure, and it doesn't need to be pumped out. But in Britain, we're never really ever short of water. We'll come on to the summer we've just had in a second. Which is a bit of a mixed blessing, because in Britain, the amount of water which can be stored as a proportion of what we use, is relatively small, and there's no significant infrastructure for moving large volumes of fresh water from parts of the country where there's a surplus to those parts that need it. Some of you here might recall the great drought of 1975-76, and I have to tell you that 2018 doesn't compare uh, to 1976, because 1975 was a very dry year, and if the Lord remains away and the summer of 2019 is as long and as dry as the one that we've had this year, then next year might be very interesting indeed. But I can remember back in 1975, I was very, very young at the time, so I can only just remember, Tunbridge Wells Town Hall having a huge display all up the front, showing how little water was left in the aquifer under the town. In some parts of the country, there were standpipes and water tankers, the situation got so desperate that the then government appointed a minister for drought. Dennis Howells was his name, I had to look him up. And everywhere that the minister went, it poured with rain, and towns fought amongst themselves to have the visitor, minister visit their town. The drought was at its worst in August 1976, but it rained throughout September and October of that year, and that was the end of the drought. The land of Israel is blessed in many respects, but regular rainfall throughout the year isn't one of them. Water is a serious business in the Middle East, and so it's not surprising that water supply is mentioned early on in the Bible. I'm not going to look at antediluvian water supply or at the flood itself. I don't have enough time. And so we'll start with the time of Abraham. And we need to start thinking in a very Middle Eastern way. Water isn't something that falls from the sky every day or so, or as today, every few minutes or so. There aren't streams of fresh water that run throughout the year every few miles or so. Water is precious. If you didn't get water for a few days, you didn't get very thirsty, you died. The animals first, then the people. If you had a river, you built your city on it. If you had a well or a spring or an oasis, you built your city near that. 
If you were going on a journey, you planned your journey from well to well, from oasis to oasis. It was vitally important that you knew where your next drink was coming from. Actually, for what it's worth, not much water then was drunk as water. It was difficult to get the water clean enough. And so water was consumed mixed with wine, the alcohol having a sterilising effect, or the water was brewed slightly for the same reason. It used to be called small beer in Britain, hence the expression we still have today. Or it was consumed as part of a meal. Stews were and are a popular dish in the Middle East. If the water was boiled as part of the cooking process, then it was safe to drink. In fact, you will recall that the Israelites have to be specifically told that the Passover lamb is to be roasted and not boiled. And there's a little difficulty over the translation of the Hebrew words. Words translated in some places as well are elsewhere translated as cistern, which is for storing water, rather than something that produces water. But we'll see how we get on. It's worth noting that there are a number of places in the Old Testament where everyone having their own cistern to drink from is a measure of success. Two of the earliest references to wells involve the same person. Back in Genesis 16, Abraham and Sarah are still childless. Despite Abraham having been told in chapter 15 that he would have many descendants. And Sarah comes up with this terrible scheme for Abraham to have children through one of her servants, Hagar. Although it's pretty much the same scheme two generations later that results in Jacob having so many children. But we tend to blame Sarah for this. But Abraham should have known better too. He should have trusted the Lord. Nevertheless, they carry out this scheme and Hagar conceives. And having conceived, she looks contemptuously on Sarah. And Sarah realises that the whole thing was a mistake. Unfortunately, Sarah doesn't blame herself for this turn of events. She takes it out on Hagar, who flees. And she flees towards Shur. And of course, she makes her journey by well. Let's just read together Genesis chapter 16, verse 7, uh, where we read, The angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness of the spring on the way to Shur. Wells were the waypoints the motorway service stations of travel in ancient Israel. And the angel of the Lord tells Hagar to return to Sarah and makes promises concerning her descendants. And some 14 years later, Sarah has a son as promised by God. But a few years after that, Sarah is now concerned that Hagar, and perhaps Ishmael, who is approaching manhood, might cause Isaac to have an accident, a fatal accident, and ask Abraham that they be sent away. And Abraham's against it. Abraham at least feels some responsibility for the failed scheme of 15 or 16 years ago. And we are perhaps a little surprised that God says to Abraham that he should follow Sarah's advice. But God also reassures Abraham that Isaac is the child of promise, but that Abraham also will have many descendants through Ishmael. And what is it that Abraham gives Hagar for the journey? Some money, perhaps a tent? No, he gives her bread and he gives her a skin of water. And this wasn't one of those little half-litre skins that you might take with you on a walk in the country somewhere. This was a four-gallon skin, 15 litres or more of water, so heavy it had to be carried on the shoulders. For water in the wilderness is more precious than money. You need about two litres of water per day. There were two of them. And with some rationing, they might have had a bit over a week's worth. But she gets lost, and that's not good in the wilderness. 
in the area of Beersheba. Now, there is a slight complication here. The Bible's being helpful here because this area doesn't get to be called Beersheba until another ten verses or so later. But Hagar doesn't know this area. She cannot find another water supply. And when the skin is empty, she knows that death cannot be long. And so she places Ishmael under the bushes. And we should remember that he's at least 14 years old. He is perhaps already delirious, talking to himself. And she walks away, for she cannot bear to see her son die. But the Lord God hears Ishmael, and once more an angel of the Lord of, of God is sent to Hagar, and she is shown a well. Go and get your son, for he will survive and found a great nation. But notice what Hagar does. She doesn't sort of rush about with the water in her hands. She fills, she fills, first fills her skin, and then she gives her son some water to drink from it. She fills the skin with water first, because water is precious, and you need to know where your next drink of water is coming from. Uh, the very next few verses in Genesis show another aspect of the importance of water in dry lands. Control of the water supply translates into political power. Abimelech was the king of the Philistines at this time, and he first enters the narrative at Genesis chapter 20. Now Abraham's servant had dug a well, perhaps the very well that Hagar is shown. But Abimelech's servants have taken it from them. Abimelech denies all knowledge of this, and so Abraham and Abimelech sign a treaty, and Abimelech is forced to acknowledge that the well is Abraham's, and that he has to retreat from these lands. And so Abraham names the place Beersheba, the well of the oath, or the well of the treaty. But some years later, Isaac has a very similar run-in with Abimelech to his father, Genesis 26. Isaac is blessed by the Lord. He has more animals, more people, and he needs to increase his water supply for them. Part of the Philistine plan to get rid of Isaac has involved filling in the wells that Abraham dug so that Isaac would go away. But Isaac, when he needs more water, digs the wells again. But he runs into trouble with the Philistine herdsmen who say that the well is theirs. And they do so on another well. But on the third well, Isaac is not opposed. But Abimelech has heard about all this water abstraction going on and he comes to see Isaac. And once more, a treaty is made and the site is rededicated as Beersheba. And you can still see the well at Beersheba today and the city that was built on the site. Indeed, it is a biblically important place being mentioned some 40 times in Scripture. And still today, the descendants of Isaac and the descendants of Ishmael quarrel over water in Israel. I'm sure you know the saying, the Arabs may have all the oil, but the Israelis have all the water. The oil is running out, it's wealth squandered. But one of the reasons that Israel annexed the Golan Heights was to give them complete control of all the northern watershed of the Jordan Valley. The Israelis have built a very extensive network, the National Water Carrier, to allow them to move water around the country. And they've even started to green the desert. And much water is drawn from aquifers that run under disputed territory. The Israelis extract much, but make it difficult for the Palestinians to do likewise. Water is power. And it's interesting to note that water is recorded as being abundant in Israel in many views of the kingdom. If we just look at Zechariah chapter 14, there's no need to turn this up. But Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 6, we read... On that day there shall be no light, cold or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day 
Living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea, and it shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and his name one. The Bible there, I mean, for us, rivers flow throughout the year. There's nothing significant in that. But if you look, I mean, the, the, the word is wadi. If you look at pictures of the wadis, they almost never have water in. And the Bible is telling us that a sign of the kingdom will be water throughout the year. We've nearly done with Genesis, and I'm approaching John chapter 4, but we need to look at one more example to show how the whole drawing water from the well business works. And this is going to be very relevant in setting the context for John chapter 4. And we need to go back to Genesis chapter 24. Abraham entrusts his most important servant with an important task. He is to find a wife for Abraham's son Isaac. And he is not to find her amongst the Philistines, but back from where Abraham came from. And so he takes a camel train and heads to Mesopotamia between the rivers Tigris and Euphrates. And after a considerable journey, he parks up his camel train by a well, by the well on the outskirts of the city of Nahor. And let's read Genesis chapter 24, verse 10. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when the women go to draw water. Now, a couple of things that we need to store away for John chapter 4. Women carried water. They did it collectively. Water collection was a social activity. And it was done in the evening, possibly also in the morning. And let's read on from verse 12, uh, Genesis chapter 24, verse 12. And uh, the servant said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. It's interesting to note that Abraham's servant prays to Abraham's God. It seems in some way he does not regard God as his God also. And in his prayer, he sets a very severe test, which we will look at in a minute. And so Rebecca appears and lets down her jar and fills it with water. And Abraham's servant asks her for a drink. And this is what happens. Genesis chapter 24, verse 17. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. How much water did Rebecca draw? Well, the servant, he didn't need much. Two litres, that's like pulling four pints. That's not going to be difficult. But Rebecca volunteered to water the camels. And that's a different thing altogether. It's often said that if a committee was asked to design a racehorse, they would come up with a camel. And I understand that camel racing is indeed very popular in some parts of the Middle East. But when God was creating the camel, he had a purpose in mind. A hardy animal able to carry great loads across the desert lands. 
And God gave the camel a number of special features. He gave them a great thirst. Having analysed a number of answers on the internet, the most popular one appears to be that a camel can drink 130 litres, that's 30 gallons, of water in 15 minutes. And Abraham's servant, well we read it, he's got 10 camels. Rebecca has to lift a tonne and a half of water until every camel has finished drinking. And this is not a small thing that she has generously offered. Well may the servant have gazed at her and for some time as she fulfilled her offer. And so it is by a well that Rebecca is chosen. And don't anyone think that drawing water was women's work because it was easy. It was hard work. Well, I mean good. We're now ready to look at John chapter 4. I suppose I ought to have a quick look at the first three verses, although they are slightly incidental. Uh, but they, but they are the reason that Jesus has gone to Samaria. Jesus, we read, has become successful, more successful, we read, than John. And, and the record takes the, the trouble to tell us that Jesus didn't baptise himself, only his disciples. Now this is not because Jesus did not want to baptise people. It would have brought real pleasure to him to have done so. But Jesus knew our human nature too well. He knew that there would be some of those who having been baptised by Jesus would consider themselves a cut above. Superior to those who had only been baptised by her disciples. Jesus knew that the importance of baptism was to the baptised and was not about the baptizer. But his success has incurred the wrath of the Pharisees and he thought on this occasion that the right thing to do was to go the extra mile that his accusers might have no cause to accuse him. And he returned to what many thought to be his home region, Galilee. Uh, now verse 4 of John 4 tells us that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. But this wasn't strictly speaking true. Jesus could have gone round Samaria and there would have been many Jews who did just that. The commentaries suggest that perhaps Jesus had to go through Samaria in order to throw the Pharisees off his trail, as it were, because they wouldn't follow him into Samaria. Perhaps. But I think that the reason Jesus had to go through Samaria was that he had work of salvation to do there. One of the things I mulled over while I was preparing this talk was just how much Jesus knew about the things that were going to happen to him. It is clear that Jesus is a prophet and that he does know the future events and he does know the events that will happen in the future. But did he know exactly how things would work out in every detail? I'm not sure. For what it's worth, I don't think he did. I think he could have done so had he wanted to, and when he needed to, he did. But I don't think on this day he knew exactly how the events at the well would work out. But he did know that he had to be about his father's business on this day. And so he reaches Jacob's well. And he takes a seat, wearied as we read from his journey. Struggle with that a bit. I don't think Jesus really did weary. But when I thought about it a bit more, I think it more likely that he didn't let any weariness he might have had show. Because Jesus made time for everyone. But here, in a quiet place, he can have a few moments before he has to get back to his work of salvation. Jesus would have known where he was. Jacob's well isn't mentioned in the Old Testament, but the field, you'll find that in Genesis 33 verse 19. 
And a thousand or so years later, it is still Jacob's field. And Jesus might have thought for a moment about his connection to Jacob through Judah and David. But we also need to pause for a moment to ask ourselves what time it was that Jesus was surveying his ancestors' field. It was about the sixth hour, the Bible tells us. Now, usually in the Bible, the sixth hour means noon, and my Bible, even as a footnote to this effect. Although John tends to use a different time system, he tends to use Roman time in his gospel, but I'm going to assume that John here used Jewish time. It was midday. It's not an important assumption if it's wrong. The only significant requirement is that it took place at a time when others would not normally be drawing water. And in the light of the discussion that takes place, it's probably made more urgent by the heat of the day than the cool of the dawn. Who were the Samaritans? Now that's not as easy question to answer as I thought it would be. There's fragmentary references in the Old Testament in 2 Kings 17, Jeremiah and Ezra 4, but nothing really substantial. They probably arose after the repopulation of Israel after the captivity of the ten tribes, perhaps with a remnant remaining. So rather than tackle that question at any length, I think the question we need to, to tackle for this afternoon's talk is, what were the Samaritans like at the time of Jesus? And this we can have a bit of a go at. They regarded themselves as descendants in the line of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. We'll see this in a minute. They regarded themselves as the custodian of the law of Moses. And we shall also see that they shared some of the prophetic interpretations of scripture with the Jews. Uh, well, with so much in common, you'd have thought they'd have gotten quite well with the Jews. Uh, but of course that never happens. The Jews detested the Samaritans. They were worse than idolaters. They'd perverted the faith of God and the word of God. There was nothing worse. The Jews barely acknowledged the existence of the Samaritans. And as I said a moment ago, many Jews would have travelled around Samaria in order to ensure that they never encountered one. The Samaritans were outcasts, pariahs. But Jesus had come to save everybody. A woman from Samaria comes to draw water. She comes on her own. But we've seen that fetching water was a social activity. Women came together to draw water. We've seen that it was hard physical activity and so it was carried out in the evening, possibly the morning, when the sun was lower in the sky. It was well known, even at the time of Jesus, that only mad dogs and Englishmen went out in the midday sun. And as Englishmen hadn't been invented and the dogs were having a day off, it was quiet this particular afternoon. Why had she come at this time? As we shall discover, her life today would be described as chaotic and dysfunctional. In times past, we might have said immoral or adulterous. And if you were trying to put a positive spin on it, you might have said bohemian or Bloomsbury. But sadly, her behaviour had alienated her from her neighbours. And she has been excluded from the social water drawing. She has to go on her own. She is an outcast among a nation of outcasts. She certainly had not expected to find anyone else at the well at this time. What is she to do? Let us ask ourselves what would have happened if Jesus had turned up at the normal time for water collecting. He would not have been treated like Abraham's servant by Rebekah. Rebekah was exceptional and the servant had prayed to God for her actions. No, the woman would have been alarmed. And one would have run back to get some big fellows from the town to keep an eye on Jesus. He was a foreigner, a migrant and he was a threat. And this doesn't surprise us, these attitudes persist to this day. But the woman who comes to draw water can't go back and get some big chats because the man who may or may not be her husband 
is a bit useless. So she demonstrates that strange courage of the outcast. She carries on doing whatever it was she was going to do. She has little to lose. At what point did she know that Jesus was a Jew? Well, I'm going to suggest that it was as soon as she saw Jesus, there was something about his dress, his bearing, maybe something he carried, that she knew he was a Jew. Certainly she knows he was a Jew as soon as Jesus speaks, and I think must have thought so prior to that. She decides to rely on the taboo that Jews and Samaritans completely ignored each other. She would go about her business, Jesus would go about his, they would not acknowledge each other's existence, and when she had drawn water, she would return to town. And this she does. And so it is Jesus who speaks first. Give me a drink, he says. And for some reason, the narrative chooses this point to tell us that the disciples have gone into town for some shopping. In my Bible, the comment is in parentheses, but I'm pretty certain brackets hadn't been invented in the first century either, and so there may be more importance to this statement being at this point. The woman, by the way, this is one of a number of biblically important characters who is not given any name, uh, like Abraham's servant in Genesis. Uh, in the traditions of the Eastern Orthodox Church, she's given the name Fatini, which I quite liked, and I did toy with using it in this talk. But it isn't scriptural, and I haven't. I'm afraid you're just going to have to put up with me calling her the woman. And so the woman considers her reply. Of course, she doesn't need to say anything. She can simply ignore Jesus, or give Jesus some water, as he had asked. But the life of an outcast is tough. You don't get far by giving water away. There's no such thing as a free drink. What annoys her most at this moment is that Jesus isn't going along with her plan. Jesus was supposed to ignore her, she was going to ignore Jesus, and nobody needed to talk to anybody. Why had Jesus done what he wasn't supposed to do? And so she asked Jesus what he thinks he's doing talking to a Samaritan. For, the Bible tells us, the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. But in verse 10 we see that Jesus hadn't really expected the woman to give him a drink. In fact, Jesus wasn't that thirsty. You see, the woman needed to know about the gift of God, the gift of eternal life. Although Jesus doesn't quite use those words, not yet. And Jesus, as the Son of God, was the best, indeed the only chance, that this woman was going to get to achieve this. But Jesus doesn't quite say that either, not yet. But notice how Jesus has turned the conversation from the woman giving something to him to Jesus giving something to her. But this woman has the wits of an outcast. She can think fast, adjust her assessment of people very quickly. And she knows a thing or two about drawing water. My Bible says she said, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. And I think we can load that opening word with a certain amount of irony. Mr. Jew, the well is deep. You haven't got a rope. You haven't got a bucket. How are you going to get this magic water? You Jews are so arrogant. Do you think you're greater than Jacob? For the woman had been to Sunday school. This well has been here for a thousand years, used by the patriarchs themselves. And you sit there with no rope and no bucket and you say you can do better. And she gives him a whole lot of outcast attitude. But Jesus, who usually had a very positive attitude, looks into the well and says, if you drink this water, you'll be back here tomorrow for some more. The day after, every day until you die, you will need to draw water. But the water I will give you, you will drink once and live forever. 
And it's here that Jesus makes it clear that he's offering nothing less than eternal life. But I have to say, I'm not clear from verse 15 whether the woman really understands at this point what is on offer. In my translation, it reads as though she sees this living water as a kind of convenience food. No need to drink two litres a day anymore. No need to have to walk out into the well in the midday sun to fetch water. Well, I'll have some of that, she says. But it's verse 16 that's the critical verse in the dialogue. Jesus sets the woman a little test, a bit like Abraham's servant with Rebecca. Go call your husband, he says, and come here. And the woman pauses for a long time before she gives her reply. You see, she's already realised that Jesus wasn't some kind of eccentric, wandering Jew who liked to break the rules and talk to Samaritan. No, Jesus was unlike any other person she'd ever met. Even in this short conversation, she knew that Jesus was a very remarkable man indeed. Something about the surety of the way he spoke. That he didn't get angry or raise his voice. But that he spoke with absolute confidence. And that everything that he said was true. And she looked at Jesus. And Jesus looked back. And when Jesus looked at you, it was like he was looking right inside your head. It was as though he had known her her entire life. There was nothing hid from him. You couldn't lie to Jesus. And so she doesn't. I have no husband, she says. And so she passes the test. For what it's worth, I think Jesus knew that she would pass the test. Jesus only gave her the test when he was confident that she would pass. And Jesus wants every one of us to pass the test. Indeed, says Jesus, you have had a handful of husbands. And the husband you have at the moment isn't your husband. Sir, the woman says, and on this occasion it's completely irony-free. You are a prophet. Well, that's good. But there's plenty of prophets. The woman still has the outcast caution. This man could be a prophet, but he couldn't be the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. He doesn't spend time on outcasts. But she is now recalling quite a bit of her Sunday schooling. We meet on this mountain, she says. But the Jews say the only place to meet is in Jerusalem. And in his reply, Jesus is both very subtle but very clear as well. He starts by in some way equating the Jews and the Samaritans, for both Jerusalem and the mountain will cease to be places of worship to God. But, he says, you worship what you do not know. And Jesus proclaims to the woman the living God. The God who made heaven and earth and all that is therein. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The God of the Jews. For salvation is from the Jews. From the king of the Jews. But Jesus says there will be a time when God will reach out to every one of you. To the people reading about you 2,000 years later. And those who God will call will worship him in spirit and truth. Yes, says the woman, and the Messiah will come, the Christ, and he will explain everything to us. Indeed, says Jesus, for I am he, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And so she has nothing more to say. What can she say? The Son of God has spoken to her, offered her eternal life. What is there to say? Then at the start of verse 28 of John chapter 4, we'll get back to verse 27 in a minute, the woman does a remarkable thing. She rushes back into town. And, and this is the remarkable thing, she leaves her bucket behind. 
Now, I don't know how many of you can remember your O-level in drawing water from wells, but you might recall that lesson one is this. Never leave your bucket behind. Someone will pinch it or knock it into the well or put a hole in it. It takes forever to sort out a hole in your bucket. Always take the bucket with you. Look at Hagar. When the water skin was empty, she didn't discard it, even though she expected to die. And when she found water, the first thing she did was fill the water skin. But if the Son of God offers you eternal life, then that is definitely worth leaving your bucket for. And there's a lesson there for us. A lot of us spend a lot of our time carrying around buckets, things. Sometimes, to serve Jesus, we need to let them go. What Jesus offers us is better. And so she rushes off to tell the people in the town about the Son of God who is sitting by the well by their town. In the meantime, the disciples have returned, and fortunately they've, shown, they've demonstrated the discretion that they don't always show. On other occasions, the disciples would have arrived, and seeing Jesus talking to a Samaritan would have thought that Jesus was being accosted by the woman, probably begging or trying to sell him some dubious product or service, and they would have sent her away with a flea in her ear. But they hold back, and watch, and they see the woman run from Jesus in obvious joy. And they come forward and urge Jesus to eat. But not only is Jesus not thirsty, he's not hungry either. Ooh, say the disciples. Not only has Jesus been talking to a Samaritan, he's been eating with one as well. Well, that's just appalling. Jews don't do that sort of thing. But no, says Jesus, I don't need food the way you do. He is fed by his father's work. How good is that? And Jesus goes on to tell his disciples how things are going to be working out in the future. For Jesus, we have learned, is a prophet. The fields are white unto harvest time, he says. Quite a bit of debate in the commentaries exactly what it is that was growing in the fields that was white at harvest. But that misses the point completely. The disciples, Jesus says, are going to be bringing in the harvest, the harvest of eternal life. They haven't sown the harvest. Jesus has done that. But I think implicit in what Jesus is saying here is that he knows what will happen in Jerusalem at the end of his ministry. For Jesus himself will not be literally with them while they toil in the harvest for he will have paid the price for our salvation. Well, the woman has now got back to Sychar and she tells the people what she has seen. And she's a transformed woman. These are the people who earlier in the day had shunned the same woman, but there is such conviction in what she says that they believe her. And they go to see Jesus. Of course, if this happened today, everyone would be there with their smartphones and everyone would scramble to have a selfie of themselves with the Son of God. I mean, who wouldn't? And they'd spend the next half hour or so putting it all up on Facebook. And of course they wouldn't be at least bit interested in what Jesus had to say. But fortunately smartphones and Facebook hadn't been invented back then either. And so the people actually listen to what Jesus says. And they're so impressed that they ask Jesus, a Jew, to stay with them, Samaritans, for two whole days, two days. But verse 42 of John 4 is a little strange. They now believe Jesus because they have had the privilege of hearing the words of the Son of God, not because of the report of the woman. Is she still distrusted and outcast among outcasts? Well, I'd like to see this more positively. We should always go back to the source. Don't believe what I'm telling you just because I'm telling you. The Samaritans heard the words of Jesus. We too can hear his words when we read the scriptures. And that is what we should believe. 
The scriptures don't say whether the disciples stayed with Jesus for the two days, although it's interesting to note that as far as I can tell, Jesus is without his disciples for the next chapter or so. They don't reappear until John 6 verse 3. And the Samaritans give Jesus a new title at the end of um, verse 42, the saviour of the world. And it's a title that's used in only one other time in scripture and it's worth reading. Uh, It's in 1 John chapter 4 and reading from verse 13. Uh, 1 John chapter 4 verse uh, 4. Uh, 1 John chapter 4 verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the saviour of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this love is perfected with us that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is also are we in this world. We know that Jesus has come to save the world. And by a well in Samaria he reached out in love to outcasts. An outcast among outcasts. And he added at first one and then many to the list of those who will be saved. Most of those who spent any time with the Son of God had their lives changed for the better, forever. And through reading the scriptures, the Bible, the gospel, the good news, we too can spend time with Jesus. And we too may share in the living water that he offers to every one of us. We hope you enjoyed that talk. For more downloads, videos, information about what we believe and details of our meeting times, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk. Music